Okay, welcome to episode four of This Week Back Then. I uh, hope everybody had a good week and um, are ready to dive right into this week's material. Uh, we will be covering events that happened between, between uh, February 21st and February 27th. So on February 21st of 1931, Alka-Seltzer was introduced. Um, so obviously, I think everybody knows the, the famous tagline, plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. Uh, but before they used that catchy little line, their ad stated that relief is just a swallow away, <laughs> which uh, incidentally was also Heidi Fleiss's tagline. <laughs> uh, anyway, I found that humorous. Um, on the 21st of February in 1946, English actor and director Alan Rickman was born. Uh, Rickman was mainly a stage actor in the 70s and 80s, and he did a little bit of TV. He didn't make his big screen debut until he was in his early 40s when he starred as the German terrorist Hans Gruber in 1988's Die Hard, which is a great movie and probably in my top three Christmas movies of, of all time. He followed, followed that up with uh, roles in The January Man, Quigley Down Under, Truly Madly Deeply, and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, uh, for which he won a BAFTA Award for Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of Sheriff Nottingham. But his most famous role would come when he played Professor Severus Snape in 2001's Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, a character which he would portray in all eight Harry Potter movies. He was, I don't know, I used to hate him, but I, obviously he turned out to be a good guy not to ruin the outcome of the Harry Potter series for anyone, but he was just so greasy and mean, but uh, quite an amazing actor, and, and he had the voice, holy cow. What an incredible voice and delivery. Um, at one point, two researchers, a linguist and a sound engineer, had found that the perfect male voice was a combination of Rickman's and Jeremy Irons' voice. Uh, the BBC, state, BBC states that Rickman's uh, sonorous, languid voice was his calling card, making even throwaway lines of dialogue sound thought out and authoritative. Um, in their vocal range exercises and studying for the GCSE and drama, he was singled out by the BBC for his excellent diction and, and articulation, which is something I lack. <laughs> <laughs> Dame Helen Mirren uh, has said that his voice could suggest honey or a hidden stiletto. And Johnny Depp, who co-starred with him in three Tim Burton, film, Burton films, uh, said that uh, that voice, that persona, there's hardly anyone unique anymore. He was unique. And indeed, he was unique. Um, in t August of 2015, he suffered a minor stroke, which led to the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. He was pretty private about it, and he only revealed the diagnosis to his closest confidants. But just a few months later, he would succumb to the disease of passing away on February 3rd, 2016, just six weeks shy of his 70th birthday. His final two films, Eye in the Sky and Alice Through the Looking Glass, were both dedicated to his memory. So R.I.P. Professor Snape. In 1947, on that very same day, February 21st, uh, Polaroid founder Edwin Land first demonstrated the instant camera at a meeting of the Optical Society of America in New York City. The land camera, as it was originally known, contained a roll of positive paper with a pod of developing chemicals at the top of each frame. Turning a knob forced the exposed negative and paper through rollers, which spread the reagents evenly between the two layers and pushed it out of the camera. A paper cutter trimmed the paper, and after a minute, the layers could be peeled apart to reveal the black and white photo. 
miraculous. By 1948, the four-pound Polaroid Land Camera Model 95 was on sale at the Jordan Marsh Department Store in Boston for a measly $89.75, which is just over $1,000 in today's money. Uh, So not just anyone could go pick one up. It made more than $5 million in sales the first year and would be the prototype for Polaroid cameras for the next 15 years. Then in 1963, the introduction of Pola Color Film enabled the cameras to produce color pics. Uh, I used to have a Polaroid camera when I was when I was young, and, and I, of course I thought they were amazing because you get an instant picture right away, which is in the 80s was incredible, I thought. And they brought them back kind of. I don't think it's it's Polaroid necessarily, but but um, I, my, I know my eight-year-old daughter got one for Christmas and it takes little bitty Polaroid pictures of whatever. It's it's uh, kind of a retro thing and it's, it's kind of pretty cool actually. On a more somber note, in uh, 1965 on February 21st, uh, civil rights activist Malcolm X was murdered. He was born in Omaha, Nebraska on May, my birthday, May 19th, 1925. His family moved to Michigan a short time later due to Ku Klux Klan threats that his father was receiving. When Malcolm was six, his father was killed in a streetcar accident. Uh, His mother thought that his father had been murdered, but the life insurance company said they thought it was suicide and refused to pay the benefits. Those bastards. His mother would later have a nervous breakdown, which led to uh, Malcolm and his siblings being placed in foster care. Then when he was 18 in 19, or, yeah, 1943, he moved to New York's Harlem neighborhood where he found employment on the railroad. Unfortunately, he also began dealing in drugs, robbery, racketeering, gambling, and pimping. While he was in Harlem, he befriended a, a man named John Elroy Sanford, who was a dishwasher at Jimmy's Chicken Shack, and he... Uh, and this Sanford guy also aspired to be a professional comedian. Um, both men had kind of reddish hair. So Sanford was called Chicago red after his hometown. And Malcolm was known as Detroit red years later, Sanford Sanford became famous as red Fox, which now I understand where Sanford and son got its name. Um, he was quite the, quite a funny guy. Uh, uh, Malcolm X was eventually arrested and convicted of larceny and breaking and entering in 1948. He was sentenced to eight to 10 years in prison. Um, uh, he was paroled in August of 1952 though. Um, it was in prison that he learned of and eventually joined the nation of Islam. He would become a pretty influential minister and was uh, really successful at recruiting new members. And he would open several temples, uh, during the 1950s. The American public first became aware of Malcolm X in 1957 after Hinton Johnson, a Nation of Islam member, was beaten by two New York City police officers. On April 26, Johnson and two other passerby, also Nation of Islam members, saw the officers beating an African-American man with nightsticks. When they attempted to intervene, shouting, you're not in Alabama, this is New York, one of the officers turned, to, turned on Johnson and was beating him so severely that he suffered brain contusions and subdural hemorrhaging. All four African-American men were arrested. Uh, Alerted by a witness, Malcolm X and a small group of Muslims went to the police station and demanded to see Johnson. Police initially not denied that any Muslims were being held, but the crowd grew to about 500. They allowed, they, they finally allowed Malcolm X to speak to speak with Johnson. Afterward, Malcolm X insisted on arranging for an ambulance to take Johnson to Harlem hospital. 
Johnson's injuries were treated by, uh, and by the time he was returned to the police station, some 4,000 people had gathered outside. Inside the station, Malcolm X and, a, and an attorney were making bail arrangements for two of the Muslims, but Johnson was not bailed, and police said he could not go back to the hospital until his arraignment the following day. Considering the situation to be at an impasse, Malcolm X stepped outside the station house and gave a hand signal to the crowd. Nation members silently left, after which the rest of the crowd also dispersed. One police officer told the New York Amsterdam News, no one man should have that much power. Within a month, the New York City Police Department arranged to keep Malcolm X under surveillance. It also made inquiries with, with authorities in other cities in which he had lived and prisons which he had served time. A grand jury declined to indict the officers who beat Johnson. In October, Malcolm X sent an angry telegram to the police commissioner. Soon, the police department assigned undercover officers to infiltrate the Nation of Islam. Over the following years, uh, Malcolm X would continue to gain popularity in the Nation of Islam, uh, eventually getting more publicity and acknowledgement than the nation's actual leader, Elijah Muhammad. Uh, but events that occurred in 62 and 63 caused Malcolm to reassess his relationship with the Nation of Islam, and in particular that with uh, Elijah Muhammad. On March 18th, March 8th, 1964, Malcolm X publicly announced his break from the Nation of Islam. Though still a Muslim, he felt that the nation had gone as far as it can because of its rigid teachings. He said it, he, was planning, he was planning to organize a black national organization to heighten the political consciousness of American, African Americans. He also expressed a desire to work with other civil rights leaders, saying that Elijah Muhammad had prevented him from doing so in the past. Throughout 1964, as his conflict with the Nation of Islam intensified, Malcolm X was repeatedly threatened. In February, a leader of Temple No. 7 ordered the bombing of Malcolm X's car. Then in March, Muhammad told Boston minister Louis X, who was later known as Louis Farrakhan, that hypocrites like Malcolm should have their heads cut off. And the April 10 edition of Muhammad Speaks featured a cartoon depicting Malcolm X's bouncing severed head. How crazy. On June 8th, FBI surveillance recorded a telephone call in which Betsy Shabazz, which was Malcolm X's wife, was told that her husband was as good as dead. Four days later, the FBI informant received a tip that Malcolm X is going to be bumped off. That same month, the nation sued to reclaim Malcolm X's residence in East Elmhurst, Queens, New York. His family was ordered to vacate, but on February 14, 1965, the night before a hearing on postponing the eviction, the house was destroyed by fire. On July 9th, Muhammad aide John Ali, who was also suspected uh, as being an undercover FBI agent, referred to Malcolm X by saying, anyone who opposes the Honorable Elijah Muhammad puts their life in jeopardy. In the December 4th issue of Muhammad Speaks, uh, Louis X wrote that such a man as Malcolm is worthy of death. The September 1964 issue of Ebony dramatized Mike Malcolm X's defiance of these threats by publishing a photograph of him holding an M1 carbine while peering out of a window of his house. I don't know if you've seen that photo, but it's um, pretty iconic. On February 19th, 1965, Malcolm X told interviewer Gordon Parks that the Nation of Islam was actively trying to kill him. Just two days later, on February 21st, 1965, he was preparing to address the OAAU in Manhattan's Audubon Ballroom when someone in the 400-person audience yelled, Nigger, get your hand out of my pocket. As Malcolm X and his bodyguards tried to quell the disturbance, a man rushed forward and shot him once in the chest with a sawed-off shotgun. And two other men then charged the stage, firing semi-automatic handguns. <laughs> 
Malcolm X was pronounced dead at 3.30 p.m. shortly after arriving at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital. The autopsy identified 21 gunshots to the chest, gunshot wounds to the chest, left shoulder, arms, and legs, including 10 buckshot wounds from the initial shotgun blast. That's crazy. 11 more bullets from those handguns. It's unbelievable. One gunman uh, was a Nation of Islam member, Talmadge Heyer, also known as Thomas Hagen, uh, was beaten by the crowd before police arrived. Witnesses identified the other gunman as Nation members Norman 3X Butler and Thomas 15X Johnson. All three were convicted of murder in March 1966 and sentenced to life in prison. At trial, Heyer confessed, but refused to identify the other assailants except to assert that they were not Butler and Johnson. In 1977 and 1978, he signed affidavits reasserting Butler's and Johnson's innocence, naming four other nation members of Newark's Mosque Number no. 25 as participants in the murder of a murder or its planning. These uh, affidavits did not result in the case being reopened. Butler, today, today known as Muhammad Abdul Aziz, was paroled in 1985 and became the head of the nation's Harlem Mosque in 1998. He maintains his innocence. Uh, to this day, in prison, Johnson, who changed his name to Khalil Islam, rejected the nation's teachings and converted to Sunni Islam. Um, he was released in 1987, and he maintained his innocence until his death in August of 2009. Heyer was who was also reject who also rejected the nation's teachings while in prison and converted to Sunni Islam, is known today as Mujahid Halim. Uh, he was paroled in 2010. Um, and if you want to see some more updated information on, on the, the, the murder case itself in 2020, uh, Netflix came out with a docu docuseries called who killed Malcolm X. And it explored the assassination, which launched a new review of the murder by the office of the Manhattan district attorney. So I would suggest going and checking that out, you know, going back to, um, Malcolm X's comment about his uh, the Nation of Islam leader Muhammad was didn't allow him to work with other civil rights activists or or politicians or or anything like that. Um, I read where Malcolm X only met uh, Martin Luther King one time, and that was uh, when they were going to Washington when the 1964 Civil Rights Act was being debated and and voted on. And they only met briefly. I wonder what uh, could have been accomplished um, if they had been able to work together and and shared their their own knowledge and vision, and and perhaps we could have made bigger leaps and bounds and and gotten uh, a lot farther along than we did in a much shorter time. Anyway, that is the assassination of Malcolm X in 1979 on February 21st. Two Iowa high school high school girls basketball teams met for a barn burner after four quarters of regulation play. They were tied at zero to zero. <laughs> the game would end in the fourth overtime with a score of four to two. I mean, Holy cow. That had to be a rough game to watch. I, I don't. I, I, <laughs> wow. Lots of defense, I guess though, huh? And in 1981, on February 21st, Charles Rocket, who was a cast member of Saturday Night Live, clearly says the word fuck on Saturday Night Live, live on TV. And now I've clearly said that word on my podcast, so I will have to tag this this episode with a E for explicit, uh, because I've apparently got some cuss words in it now. 
which is kind of exciting. Uh, but the par- the parody, um, at the, at the end of the show of the Saturday Night Live that week, they were doing a parody of Who Shot JR, which I grew up watching Dallas every Friday night. It's Dallas and Falcon Crest, or Falcon Crest and Dallas, I think. I think it was Friday. Yeah, it was Friday nights. Um, and so I was, you know, I I watched all of that uh, from the first season on. And I remember the whole Who Shot JR episode and the cliffhanger and whatnot. Well, apparently they did a parody of Who Shot JR, and Charlene Tilton was the guest host, and she played uh, Lucy Ewing on Dallas. Uh, but uh, he said, um, what he said was, I-, I would like to know who the fuck shot me. Um, and of course the sensors went crazy and, and the entire production, co- uh, team of Silent Live got replaced and the executive producer and he got fi- this Charlie rocket got fired and all kinds of stuff all over the word fuck, I guess. Speaking of fucking, um, in 1988 on this day, February 21st, Jimmy Swigert confesses to his congregation, uh, this guy, what a piece of work. Um, I think televangelists are pretty much shit to begin with, but uh, they're the biggest hypocrites out there. And when they get caught, they cry and they beg for forgiveness and whatever. Sw- Swigert did this on TV after pictures of uh, him with a sex worker surfaced. And the pictures supposedly were leaked or sent out by another TV preacher that got caught in a sex scandal a few years earlier. And of course, then right around that same time was the Jim Baker sex scandal on top of all his other scandals. Um, it, it just, it, it, it's so crazy. I have no sympathy for those guys. They, 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 uh, they just prey on people and, and it's whatever. That's my personal opinion, I guess. Um, one interesting fact about Jimmy Swigert is, uh, he's a cousin to Jerry Lee Lewis and Mickey uh, Gilly as well. They're all three cousins, but, um, the only good thing I think about Jimmy Lee Swigert was uh, Alec Baldwin portrayed him in the uh, movie Great Balls of Fire, which was the story of Jerry Lee Lewis's life. Uh, played Jerry Lewis, played by uh, Dennis Quaid, and at one point, um, Alec Baldwin portraying Jimmy Swigert is preaching on the street, trying to raise money. Aren't they always trying to raise money? Those preachers <laughs> trying to raise money to buy a new car because his car is broken down. And he says, the Lord can only help those who help themselves, whatever he says. Um, and Jimmy Lee, Jerry Lee Lewis drives up in a brand new Oldsmobile that he had just bought. And he tosses him the keys and tells him, well, why don't you take this Oldsmobile? And, and, and Alec Baldwin says, thank you, Jesus. And Jerry Lee Lewis says, well, don't thank Jesus. Thank Jerry Lee Lewis. <laughs> Moving on to February 22nd, uh, there's a lot of stuff on the 21st. The rest of the days aren't, there's only a couple items each day. I promise this won't be a three hour podcast. Um, in 1962, Steve Irwin, Irwin was born, also known as the crocodile hunter. I mean, who didn't love this guy? His enthusiasm for wildlife and conservationism and the environment was unmatched and pretty contagious too. Um, he was always wide eyed and on the brink of death while dealing with like 12 plus foot crocodiles and venomous snakes and all kinds of crazy shit. And I mean, who hasn't used the word crikey at some point in their life? I, I've just used it today. <laughs> uh, he was pretty awesome, but unfortunately he only lived to be 44 uh, while snorkeling in chest deep waters at the great barrier reef. He swam up behind a stingray uh, because he wanted to kind of shoo it along so he could film it, uh, swimming away 
for for a video he was doing and um it it uh instead of swimming away it reared up and lashed out with its stinger reportedly hundreds of times in just a few seconds and uh, one of those lashes pierced uh, the chest of Irwin and penetrated his thoracic wall, causing massive trauma. They got him on the boat, and he originally thought that he had a punctured lung, but it was his heart, and he ended up bleeding to death on the boat. Um, but he was doing what he loved, I guess. Uh, pretty sad ending, but um, his family has carried on his legacy. I think uh, both his son and daughter are both involved in in um wildlife conservationism and and uh, uh environmental things and so that's that's always good to see so on february 22nd of 2009 uh, heath ledger became only the second actor to receive a posthumous academy award when he won for one best supporting actor for his role as the joker in uh the dark knight and what an amazing job he did there uh, by the time he was cast as Joker in Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, he had already racked up a pretty impressive resume for for such a young guy. His credits uh, included 10 Things I Hate About You, A Knight's Tale, Monster's Ball, The Patriot, The Brothers Grimm, Brokeback Mountain, Casanova, all really good movies. Uh, director for, or director, director Christopher Nolan had met with Ledger over the years for different roles, and while meeting for the part of Batman and Be- Batman Begins, so he was actually considered for Christian Bale's role of Batman, Ledger explained that he was not interested in working on such a film. The actor reflected on this pro- on his problems with portraying superheroes, saying, I would feel just stupid and silly. I couldn't pull it off, and there are, are other people who can perfectly, but I just couldn't take myself seriously. However, later impressed with Batman Begins, Ledger sought out the part of the Joker from Nolan. So impressed with Ledger's determination, Nolan cast him in the part. He said, uh, or the casting director said Heath was just ready to do it. He was ready to do something that big. Um, he said, he said the filmmakers knew they needed somebody courageous to play the part. And, and he was actually, Heath Ledger was actually cast before there was even a script. So, uh, Heath Ledger described the Joker as a psychopathic mass murdering schizophrenic clown with zero empathy. (laughs) That's pretty accurate. I suppose. Highlighting the opportunity for freshness, Ledger aimed for a new and different interpretation of the character separate from previous film on film incarnations. Um, it's hard for me to beat Jack Nicholson's Batman in the 1989 movie, Batman only because Nicholson, I think is probably my favorite actor of all time. And and he just was, was incredible in that role. However, the dark Knight is a totally different take on the movie. And so, um, I, can fully appreciate Heath Ledger's portrayal of Joe of Joker just as much. Um, Steve Alexander was, who was Heath Ledger's agent said the actor had a pay or play deal on the dark Knight, So he felt free to do whatever he wanted to do as the Joker, no matter how crazy. And according to the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus cinematographer, Nicola Pecorini, uh, Ledger had talked with him about Johnny Depp's off-kilter portrayal of Jack Sparrow in Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, in relation to The Dark Knight, aiming to make a performance that would be so far out he'd be fired. As Ledger was cast early in pre-production, Nolan explained that the actor had months and months to prepare for the role. Um, He kept a diary... um, leading up to the role, a Joker diary, basically. And in it, he, one of his squabblings in there 
Uh, he said, inside, he's laughing red and black and red and black till there's nothing left to laugh until almost tenderly he turns ins- inside out through his mouth. Interesting. Um, <laughs> during a span of six we- weeks, Le- uh, Ledger locked himself away in a hotel room, forming a character diary and experimenting with voices. Uh, it's a combination of reading all the comic books I, ca- I could that were relevant to the script and then just closing my eyes and meditating on it, he said. The diary contains scrawlings and cuttings inside. Uh, Christopher Hooten, writing for The Independent, said that the Joker Journal had several stills from Stanley Kubrick's film A Clockwork Orange, Joker Joker cards, photos of hyenas, unhinged, cl- unhinged clown makeup, and the word chaos highlighted in green. Furthermore, it contains a list of things the Joker would find funny, such as AIDS and landmines and geniuses suffering brain damage. It was revealed that Ledger uh, had read Grant Morrison's writing of The Clown at Midnight and based the list upon the Batman writer's prose. Ledger highlighted the importance of finding an iconic voice and laugh for the character, relating the voice as the key to the demented killer. Nolan explained Ledger's early and peculiar ambition for the voice of the character, saying that the actor had studied the way ventriloquist dummies talk. The filmmaker also acknowledged that the voice performance was based on the Alexander technique. Ledger developed the Joker's voice and mannerisms slowly over time and during camera tests. Don't act, just read it, Nolan had told Ledger for a test screening. Uh, in hair and makeup uh, tests, Ledger would start exploring the movements of the character. While test re- recording without sound, he shared his take on the Joker's voice and, fi- and physicality, and in that way, he sort of sneaked up on it. Uh, the actor developed the physical appearance of the character being very involved with the painting of his face, uh, says prosthetic supervisor Connor O'Sullivan. O'Sullivan acknowledged how Ledger, Nolan, and makeup artist John Caglione all gravitated towards a Francis Bacon painting Nolan was, was referring to. Ledger also got to choose the Joker's weapon among different rubber knives, and he worked closely with costume designer Lindy Hemming on deciding the look for the character. So he had a lot to do with the creation of the Joker in Dark Knight. Um, Nolan noted that uh, we gave a Francis Bacon spin to his face. This corruption, this decay in the texture of the look itself, it's grubby. You can almost imagine what he smells like. That's true. I bet he stunk. Uh, Costume designer Linda Hemming picked inspiration for the chaotic look from such countercultural pop uh, culture artists as Iggy Pop, Johnny Rotten, and Sid Vicious. She gave the image for Joker of for the Joker of someone who is very sweaty and who probably doesn't have a proper home. She tried to present a backstory for the character that he really doesn't look after himself. Well, I think that's pretty apparent. So, mission accomplished. Um, application of Heath Ledger's makeup was done with the actor scrunching special facial expressions. Caglione called the application work a dance. This technique created facial textures for white paint. As Ledger closed his eyes tight, Caglione put on the black makeup. Then water was sprayed over the eyes, and the actor would squeeze his eyes and shake his head to create imperfections in the makeup. To to get in character for filming, Ledger used his Joker diary, which he carried with him on set. And between takes, he would stay in costume and makeup, just being himself. Uh, The actor would goof around skateboarding while in his Joker costume on set and smoking cigarettes. John Caglione described Ledger as helping others around to relax, never letting the intense nature of the roles overwhelm him. The 
first sequence shot was the film's IMAX opening, which was called the prologue. As the Joker wears a mask through the scene with minimal dialogue, Nolan set the prologue first in the schedule because he wanted to put off performance worries, allowing Ledger to enjoy that relief. Uh, the interrogation scene between Batman and the Joker was the first scene shot with Ledger, really showing the full performance altogether. The director and his leading actors are, are all liked the idea of shooting the key scene early on. Uh, during rehearsals, the actors kept things loose and improvisational, saving for the actual shoot. Bale confirmed that Ledger did not perform the Joker's voice during rehearsals, waiting to get in character when the cameras rolled. Nolan later acknowledged the scene to be his favorite in the film, saying, I had never seen anybody sell a punch the way Heath was able to do that with Christian. Ledger was allowed to shoot and direct the threat videos the Joker uh, sends out as warnings. Each take Ledger made was different from the last. Uh, Nolan was impressed enough with the first video shoot that he chose not to be present when Ledger shot the video with a kidnapped reporter, played by Anthony Michael Hall. Uh, Heath Ledger always showed up early on set. The first thing he would do, according to Caglione, was give bear hugs to cast and crew members around the set. And no matter how banged up or bruised Heath was after a long day, after we take off the last drop of makeup, he'd just hug everybody in the trailer before he left. At the end of his shooting, on his Joker's Diaries final page, Ledger wrote, bye-bye. On February 23rd of 1896, the Tootsie Roll was introduced. Um, by Austrian immigrant Leo Hirschfeld. He invented the Tootsie Roll and began selling them at a small Brooklyn candy store on February 23rd, 1896, and they sold for a penny and were the first penny candy to be individually wrapped. Uh, the treat was named after his five-year-old daughter, Clara, who he called Tootsie, obviously. He applied for a patent on the candy's unique te texture in 1907, and he got it in 1908, and that's when the marketing push for Tootsie Rolls began. And today, they make over 65 million Tootsie Rolls per day. Holy mackerel, that's a lot of Tootsie Rolls. In 1945, on February 23rd, the, uh, in the famous uh, port picture of the raising of the flag at Iwo Jima was taken. On, uh, I'll give you a little backstory to it. On February 19th, 1945, the United States invaded Iwo Jima as part of its island hopping strategy to defeat Japan. Iwo Jima originally was not a target, but the relatively quick fall of the Philippines left the Americans with a longer than expected lull prior to the planned invasion of Okinawa. I guess if you've got nothing to do, you might as well take over an island. Um, Iwo Jima is located halfway between Japan and the Mariana Islands where American long-range bombers were based and was used by the Japanese as an early warning station, radio, radio, radioing warnings of incoming American bombers to the Japanese homeland. So it's kind of an important island. Um, the island itself is dominated by Mount Suribachi, which is a 546-foot dormant volcanic cone at the southern tip of the island. Um, tactically, the top of, Sur of uh, Suribachi was one of the most important locations on the island. From that vantage point, the Japanese defenders were able to spot artillery accurately onto the Americans, and uh, particularly the landing beaches. Uh, Iwo Jima is a volcanic island shaped like a trapezoid. Uh, Marines on the island described it as a large gray pork chop. The island was heavily fortified, and the invading Marines suffered high casualties. Uh, politically, the island is part of the prefecture of Tokyo. It would be the first Japanese homeland soil to be captured by the Americans, and it was a matter of honor for the Japanese to prevent its capture. 
There were two American flags raised on top of Mount Suribachi on February 23rd, 1945. The photograph um, taken by Joe Rosenthal was actually of the second flag raising, in which a larger replacement flag was raised by different Marines than those who raised the first flag. The first flag measured 54 by 28 inches, but it was hard to see from the north side of the island, um, and there was where there was still heavy fighting going on um, in the days that followed. The iconic picture is of the second flag raised that day, and it measured 96 by 56 inches. And this photo is the only photo to win the Pulitzer Prize in the same year it was published. Um, the six flag raisers were Corporal Harlan Block, PFC Harold Keller, PFC Franklin Susley, uh, Sergeant Michael Strank, uh, PFC Harold Schultz, and PFC Ira Hayes. Um, unfortunately, Block, Susley, and Strank were all killed during the battle on that island. Uh, the picture has been used in all kinds of ways. It was used in the 7th War Bonds Drive of 1945. It was the model for the U.S. Marine Corps Memorial in Arlington National Cemetery, and it was on the back of the 230th Marine Anniversary Silver Dollar, among other things, obviously. And both of those flags are preserved in the National Museum of the Marine Corps in Triangle, Virginia. I'm going to have to go check that out. On February 24th of 1938, Philip Hampson Knight was born. Uh, he is an American billionaire businessman. He's the co-founder and chairman uh, emeritus of Nike Inc. Uh, and was previously chairman and CEO of the company. As of July 23rd, 2020, he was ranked by Forbes as the 26th richest person in the world with an estimated net worth of $39.2 billion. He's also owner of the stop-motion film production company Leica, or Leica, I'm not sure, because I've never heard of that. Uh, he's a graduate of the University of Oregon and Stanford Graduate School of Business. He ran track under coach Bill Bowerman at the University of Oregon, with whom he would co-found Nike a few years later. Uh, immediately after graduating from the University of Oregon, Knight enlisted in the Army and served one year on active duty and seven years in the Army Reserve. He next enrolled at Stanford Graduate School of Business, where for his small business class, Knight produced a paper, Can Japanese Sports Shoes Do to German Sports Shoes What Japanese Cameras Did to German Cameras? <laughs> Quite the title. Uh, that essentially prim uh, premised his eventual foray into selling running, shoe, running shoes. His ambition was to import high-quality and low-cost running shoes from Japan into the American market. Low-cost. Are you kidding me? Have you bought a pair of Nikes lately? Or in the last 30 years? Um, okay, I digress. He graduated with a master's degree in business administration from Stanford in 1962. He set out on a trip around the world after graduation, during which he made a stop in Kobe, Japan, in November of 1962. It was there that he discovered Tiger brand running shoes, manufactured in Kobe by the Onitsuku, Onitsuka Company. Impressed by the quality and low cost of the shoes, Knight called Mr. Onitsuka, who agreed to meet with him. By the end of the meeting, Knight had secured Tiger distribution rights for the Western United States. The first Tiger samples would take more than a year to be shipped tonight. During that time, he found a job as an accountant in Portland. When Knight finally received the shoe samples, he mailed two pairs to Bowerman at the University of Oregon, hoping to gain both a sale and an influential endorsement. To Knight's surprise, Bowerman not only ordered the Tiger shoes, but also offered to become a partner with Knight and provide product design ideas. The two men agreed to a partnership by handshake on January 25, 1964, the birth date of Blue Ribbon Sports. Uh, the company that would later become Nike. Knight's first sales were out of a now-storied green Plymouth Valiant automobile at track meets across the Pacific Northwest. 
1969, these early sales allowed Knight to leave his accountant job and work full-time for Blue Ribbon Sports. Jeff Johnson, Nike's very first employee, suggested calling the firm Nike, named after the Greek wing goddess of victory, and Blue Ribbon Sports was subsequently renamed Nike in 1971. The Nike swoosh logo, uh, now considered one of the most valuable logos in the world, was commissioned for $35 from graphic design student Carolyn Davidson in 1971. According to Knight's, uh, Nike's website, Knight said at the time, I don't love it, but it'll grow on me. <laughs> so that is your boy, Phil Knight, king of Nike. And in 1998, on February 24th, um, one of my favorite performers of all time, uh, Elton John becomes Sir Elton John when the Queen of England knighted him for services to music and charitable services. I would say it was a well-deserved uh, honor. He has done so much for AIDS research and um, so many other charities too. He's 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 been very blessed, and he's also he, he shared that blessing with with so many people. So way to go, Sir Elton! On February twenty fifth of eighteen thirty six, Samuel Colt patents the revolver, uh, and handguns would change forever. In eighteen thirty six, Connecticut born gun manufacturer Samuel Colt received a U.S. patent for a revolver mechanism that enabled a gun to be fired multiple times without reloading. Colt founded a company to manufacture his revolving cylinder pistol. However, sales were slow and the business floundered. Then in 1846, with the Mexican War, which went from 1846 to 48 underway, the U.S. government ordered a 1,000 Colt revolvers. In 1855, Colt opened what was the world's largest private armament factory in which he employed advanced manufacturing techniques such as interchangeable parts and an organized production line. And by 1856, the company would produce 150 weapons per day. Colt was, Colt was also an effective promoter, and by the start of the U.S. Civil War, he had made the Colt revolver perhaps the world's best-known firearm. He died a very wealthy man in 1862, and the company that he founded remains in business today. And in 1913, Jim Backus was born, better known as Thurston Howe III from Gilligan's Island. I just thought I'd throw that one in there. Um, in 1957, on February 25th, Bugs Moran dies. Uh, he was the notorious gangster and leader of Chicago's Northside Gang during Prohibition. He died in Leavenworth Prison just a few months into his 10-year sentence. Um, I spoke quite a bit about him on last week's episode with the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And then this one right here just makes me giggle. Um, in 2018, on February 25th, uh, China briefly bans the letter N. So the, the government banned a letter, a, a, a letter of the alphabet from being used on the internet. Um, so, I mean, banning a letter is enough to make you go, what the hell? But they banned a letter that is in their actual country's name. So, I mean, I guess China just becomes Chia or Chia. Chia yeah, Chia. Uh, which I hear you could buy little replicas of the country at Walgreens, water it for, for a few weeks, and, and poof, tiny communists will grow right out of it. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Uh, could you imagine if a letter in your name was banned? I mean, luckily, I don't have any N's in my name, but what about all the poor Nancys or Nanettes? Or what if you've got a nanny? Do you just have a I or A? I, I don't know. Um, Wheel of Fortune was practically unplayable that week, as I hear. January, not January. 
holy mackerel, February 26th, 1829, uh, Levi Strauss was born. Uh, he was an American businessman who founded the first company to manufacture blue jeans. His firm, Levi Strauss and Company, began in, in 1853 in San Francisco, California. Strauss was born in the Franconia region of the Kingdom of Bavaria in the German Confederation. At age 18, he traveled with his mother and two sisters to the United States to join his brothers, Jonas and Lewis, who had begun a wholesale dry goods business in New York City called J. Strauss Brother and Company. Levi's sister Fanny and her husband David Stern moved to St. Louis, Missouri, while Levi went to live in Louisville, Kentucky, and sold his brother's supplies there. Levi became an American citizen in January 1853. The family decided to open a West Coast branch of their dry goods business in San Francisco, which was the commercial hub of the California Gold Rush. Levi was chosen to represent them, and he took a steamship for San Francisco, where he arrived... Wait a minute. A steamship? Wasn't he just in Louisville? Or... Well, or St. Louis, I guess I'd be a long way to get there by steamship. But at any rate, um, he arrived early in March 1854 and joined his sister's family. Strauss opened his wholesale business as Levi Strauss and Company and imported fine dry goods uh, from his brothers in New York, including clothing, bedding, combs, purses, and handkerchiefs. He made tents and later jeans while he lived with Fanny's growing family. Jacob W. Davis was one of his customers and one of the inventors of riveted denim pants. And in 1871, uh, he went into business with Strauss to produce the jeans. The two men patented the new style of work pants in 1873. Uh, Levi Strauss died on September 26, 1902, and was buried in the home of Peace Cemetery um, in Colma, California. He left his company to his four nephews, Jacob, Sigmund, Lewis, and Abraham Stern, the sons of his sister Fanny and her husband David Stern. His estate was worth about $6 million, or in 2019 dollars, $177.3 million. There's lots of money in them blue jeans. On February 26th of 1983, now we're talking the 80s, um, Thriller goes number one. Thriller, what an album this was. Holy smokes. I loved every song on this thing. Um, it was released in November 30th on November 30th of, of 1982 by Epic Re Records, and it really cemented Jackson's place in music history. I mean, he was already a super famous singer and and whatever, but this album was the shit. I, I had the album. I remember the cover. It was him in a white suit, kind of laying sideways, and then when you pulled it out, it folded out, and it was his whole body laying there with a tiger cub by his legs. It was, I don't know, it was cool then. Um. I mean, the song, you know, The Girl Is Mine, Billie Jean, Beat It, Want to Be Starting Something, Human Nature, PYT, and of course, Thriller. Um, all those songs reached the top 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, which set a record for the most top 10 signals from from a single album. Um, Beat It and Billie Jean reached number one. Um, and I think probably a couple of those others should have too. Uh, it was just, it was that good. I mean, just reading those titles made me want to sing every one of those songs. I won't torture you with that, though. Not right now. Um, that album remains the best-selling album of all time with over 66 million sales, which is 33 times platinum. Uh, also, the first album in the U.S. to become the bestseller for two years in 1983 and 1984. You know, I remember uh, the Guinness Book of World Records that year. I used to collect Guinness Book of World Records. I'd get doing one every year. I was fascinated with world records, I guess. I, I know. I'm, a big nerd. 
whatever. And I remember <laughs> the 1984 edition had a special picture of Jackson up in the upper corner, um, right, right side corner, I think. And, and it said something like last minute entry includes Michael Jackson's record breaking something or another. I don't remember, but, um, I need to look for that book. I'm sure I still have all those. Uh, but I, I was amazing. Um, and then there was, I, then there was the music video for thriller. Good God. I mean, it was like a mini movie. Uh, for those of you that weren't around when MTV was just starting out in the early eighties, this was a turning point. I mean, this set the stage for what will become like a whole new form of music videos, like cinematic instead of just someone on stage singing or videos of a band playing or whatever. Um, when MTV released that video, I, I remember it. They, they played it. I want to say they played it every hour. Um, and I watched it every hour for a long time. Uh, it was like nine minutes long. It was, it was so good. And Vincent Price's voice at the end. Ah, oh, I loved it. Um, I'm going to have to put, I'm going to have to throw that playlist together right now too, as well as soon as I'm done with this. But um, anyway, that was uh, Thriller number one, 1983 and 1984 on February 27th of 1927 some golfers were arrested for the second sunday in a row in south carolina for violating the sabbath for the second week in a row these golfers were arrested for playing golf on a sunday Ugh, i can't even tell you how much this is ridiculous governor john reynolds had declared to make south carolina the most moral state but uh, by enforcing all the blue laws which dated back to 1691 and included included refraining from activities on the sabbath i I, really i mean what happened to separation of church and state so ridiculous uh the, the arrested golfers were exonerated two weeks later and the sabbath activity ban was repealed soon after well that's just i just can't what people are crazy Anyway, and our last event for this week is uh, happened on February 27th of 1932. Uh, Dame Elizabeth Taylor was born. Uh, she was uh, born in London, England, to socially prominent American parents. They moved to L.A. when Taylor was seven, and by the time she was 10, she was starring in movies. She's, of course, famous for her many acting roles, as well as her multiple marriage and penchant for crazy big diamonds. Uh, the most famous being a 69 plus carat Burton Taylor diamond that her then husband, Richard Burton bought her for $1.1 million in 1969, which is about seven and a half million dollars in today's money. But I'm not going to go into all the details of her life. Instead, I'm going to talk about what I think is the most important role she ever played. That's the role she played as a leading advocate for HIV AIDS activism. Taylor was one of the first celebrities to participate in HIV AIDS activism and helped to raise more than $270 million for the cause. She began her philanthropic work after becoming frustrated with the fact that very little was being done to combat the disease despite the media attention. She later explained for Vanity Fair that she decided with my name I could open certain doors, that I was a commodity in myself, and I'm not talking as an actress. I could take the fame I'd resented and tried to get away from for so many years, but you can never get away from it, and use it to do some good. I wanted to retire, but the tabloids wouldn't let me. So I thought, if you're going to screw me over, I'll use you. Good for her. Uh, Taylor began her philanthropic efforts in 1984 by helping to organize, helping to organize and hosting uh, the first AIDS fundraiser to benefit the AIDS Project Los Angeles. In uh, August 1985, she and Dr. Mike, Michael Gottlieb 
founded the National AIDS Research Foundation after her friend and former co-star Rock Hudson announced that he was dying of the disease. The following month, the foundation merged with Dr. Mathilde Krim's AIDS Foundation to form the American Foundation for AIDS Research, AMFAR. As AMFAR's focus is on search research funding, Taylor founded the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation in 1991 to raise awareness and to provide support services for people with HIV and AIDS, play, uh, paying for its overhead costs herself. Since her death, the Sahara State has continued to fund ETAF's work and donates 25% of royalties from the use of her image and likeness to the foundation. In addition to her work for people affected by, by HIV-AIDS in the United States, Taylor has was instrumental in expanding AMFAR's operations to other countries. ETAF also operates internationally. Taylor testified before the Senate and House for the Ryan White Care Act in 1986, 1990, and 1992. She persuaded President Ronald Reagan to acknowledge the disease for the first time in a speech in 1987 and publicly criticized criticized Presidents George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton for lack of interest in combating the disease. Taylor also founded the Elizabeth Taylor Medical Center to offer free HIV and AIDS testing and care at the Whitman Walker Clinic in Washington, D.C., and the, and the Elizabeth Taylor Endowment Fund for the UCLA Clinical AIDS Research and Education Center in Los Angeles. She's so remarkable, I'm telling you what. In 2015, Taylor's business par partner, Kathy Ireland, claimed that Taylor ran an illegal underground network that distributed medications to Americans suffering from HIV and AIDS during the 1980s, when the FDA had not yet approved them. The claim was challenged by several people, including AMFAR's former vice president for development and external affairs, Taylor's former publicist and activists who were involved in the Project Inform in the 80s and 90s. Well, if she did, good for her, if it's true. Um... Taylor was honored with several awards for her philanthropic work. She was made a Knight of the French Legion of Honor in 1987 and received the Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award in 1993, the Screen Actor Guild's Lifetime Achievement Award for Humanitarian Services in 1997, the GLAAD Vanguard Award in 2000, and the Presidential Citizens Medal in 2001. She really was a remarkable woman. I mean, she took a cause that nobody was talking about at the time that everyone was scared to death that they were going to catch AIDS with a handshake or whatever. And, and she embraced it and, and fought for it and, and raised slew of money uh, for research and, and support. And so um, it's God bless her for sure. And that wraps it up for this week. I hope you enjoyed our little seven days of history um, all wrapped up in less than 50 minutes, I guess. Um, I want to, I guess, talk about, or mention where I've got most of my information. Wikipedia, of course, edn.com, history.com, Time Magazine, and uh, Mr. Millis, my uh, history teacher in high school. Uh, so thank you to all of those sources. Um, join us next week when we talk about uh, witchcraft, the world's first national park, King Kong, and uh, maybe the Hindenburg. We'll see. Until then, I hope you all uh, stay safe and healthy, and uh, be sure to visit us at uh, thisweekbackthen.com. Like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, we're all out there. Um, so until next time, be kind. <laughs>